Hello and welcome to the Deep Chain Bear Podcast. My name is Sean and joining me as always is the one and only Dante Boffman, Mr. Boffman man. How are we? I'm so good. I'm all I'm all danced out. All danced out, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Will you Michael take Jordan has danced me out? <laughs> well, let's start right there. Do you like the name The Last Dance? I think it's okay. Yeah. It doesn't uh it doesn't grab me, but I love that it's mired in historical fact you know that it was actually a name bestowed by the coach mm. that all the team were kind of like aware of like you know one last dance yeah it's nice it's, it's fitting it, it is nice um i would have preferred the name michael jordan shits on players from 20 years ago that he still holds grudges against um <laughs> in the most biased form possible where when they show isaiah thomas trying to defend himself it's like really <laughs> really silent awkward in a bit of a dark room, he's sitting to the side. He looks defensive. Uh, yeah. He says just immediately, like, he didn't shake their hand. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. I just, <laughs> this is very, very biased media. If this wasn't sports, yeah. everyone would be up in arms yelling. So by, now, yeah, so by now, it's done. We've watched all 10 episodes. It's out there. I think one, like, just on what you're talking about with Isaiah, one, um, one other thing that kind of, jumped out to me in terms of it being extremely biased. Obviously because MJ is like the only person who gives opinions on MJ. So it's all <laughs> this is what he says about himself. Um, but the one the one thing from like an opponent that really jumped out at me was when they were talking about the final series, the ninety four finals between the no, sorry, the ninety six finals between the Bulls and the Sonics. Mm-hmm. And they're talking to Gary Payton and Gary Payton's like, yeah, like they, they got us in the first two games and then in, uh, in the first three games and then I switched on to him and we won two in a row. And, you know, like we really felt like we had kind of figured out how to slow him down enough. But by the time we figured it out, we'd kind of run out of time. And then they show Michael Jordan what Gary Payton says. And then Michael Jordan's like, no, Gary, Gary didn't slow me down. And then they're just like, Let's leave it. They're like, all right, cool. All right, everyone. Mike said that the last guard to win defensive play with the yard didn't slow him down. Then, all right, I guess we we'll move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. It's yeah, like a... Mike, he's <laughs> unstoppable. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to bounce back a little bit and say that there were a lot of players from the era who did sort of come to his defense, not or come to his offense, really. Like you see Reggie Miller, who says amazing yeah. things about him, and Larry Bird says, you know, that wasn't Michael Jordan playing. That was God disguised as Michael Jordan for 48 minutes. Like, shit like yeah. that is, is really cool. And we'll, when we watch this exact same documentary 20 years from now when LeBron's doing his thing um, under, like, LeBron films or whatever it is, which we're <laughs> going to talk about soon with his Netflix movie, but uh, how many players do you reckon will come to LeBron's defense that either weren't his teammates or aren't clutch clients? I, I do think there'll be a lot because I think among players of the same, and it's difficult because LeBron's kind of had a jet, like a career that has spanned kind of two generations really yeah. in that like someone like Steph Curry, arguably his greatest postseason nemesis is, was drafted, you know, like seven years later than him. Yeah. Um, so he kind of does, the kind of, he didn't, the, the people who he kind of grew up with in the NBA are all 
pretty much gone. The bellows and there's and this, yeah, and there's this new crop of superstars, the Durants, the Currys, et cetera, like the Westbrooks, Hardens that are all coming like later and that are heaps younger than him, but he's like still here. Mm. And so I think a lot of those people, like, you know, you guarantee, you, I can guarantee you that when Seth Curry was, you know, like in, in um, college at Davidson in 2009, he's watching 25 year old LeBron James and being like, oh my God, like, I want to be like LeBron James. I guarantee yeah. all these dudes. Were. And then they get to that level and they're like, oh, like, I'm actually kind of like as, like as good as him. So I think the one difference that there will be is that no one, it seemed like no one in, in like at that time thought that they were as good as Jordan. Maybe like they touch on it with like Clyde Drexler thought maybe he was as good as Jordan and then they lose in the finals and you never hear him again. And mm. The thing with LeBron now is that there's a lot of dudes who pro- who think that they are better than him. They're they're all wrong because it's like Kevin Durant thinks he's better than LeBron and has like gone on record and said that and has always resented being viewed as like the second best player in the league. Like whatever way you want to crop it, like LeBron is and always has been better than Kevin Durant. Mm. Um, but you know, someone like that's not going to come out and you know speak yeah. in, in defense of LeBron. But you know, they only got say they only got 10, 10 like you know like rivals of Michael Jordan to speak in the documentary and say like, oh, like he was really good, he was so great, he was greater than any of us. Mm. You know, Michael Jordan played for like 16 years, so that's a pretty, mm. or 14 years, so it's a pretty small sample size. Yeah, you know, no, it could you have been another 40 people that, yeah. Because you've got, and it sort of did happen there with MJ, because you've got Larry Bird at the start of the doco when MJ's rising, and then you've got yeah. uh, Reggie Miller at the end. So that's sort of tip and tail of his careers. And just immediately when I thought of that, when you said players growing up idolizing this guy, you know all those photos of Trey Young and Jason Tatum, of them, yeah. and they're like 16 years old taking a photo with LeBron because they're fans. So, you know, you could imagine... Mello saying early on, like, yeah, we had some battles. I beat him in the first <laughs> the first day of the season, New York versus Cleveland, and that's like that's Mello's documentary done. But you know, you <laughs> can have someone like Mello say that, and then Jason Tatum would be the guy at the end that said, Yeah, I dunked on him, but holy shit, like I remember when I was fifteen I took a photo with him. Like, yeah, there are there are guys like that, so Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean you like you know, the Jason Tatum thing would be like, Yeah, like I dunked on him. Um, and we thought, like, we thought we had this young up and coming team, and we thought we had him, and we, mm. you know, we had we had him right there, and we were like, oh my god, like, do we dare to believe that we could beat him, and you know, win the Eastern Conference, and then you know, he'll be like, oh, and then he just like activated some, you know, mode that he, um, mo- you know, some mode that he's saving and is powered through, and then it'll be like, yeah, you can just you can easily picture it. And mm. like someone like Steph Curry would definitely come and speak and yeah. say like, man, like I think that's more that Steph Curry is a golden boy who's like, you know, goes to church every Sunday and just loves to be loved and is too nice a guy. But, you know, would you see Derek Rose come out and say something? Derek Rose, who was known as the LeBron stopper uh, when he first came to Miami or someone like that. Paul George, maybe. Derek Rose won't, won't be asked to. <laughs> he, he was relevant for two years in the, in the LeBron story. I mean, Paul George would definitely be, would definitely be somebody, battles. yeah, because of those battles with the Pacers, but then also because um, of the LA stuff going on now where, like, you know, they're, they're cross-town rivals. So, and, and, you know, like, 
Kawhi obviously wouldn't speak. I don't think because just <laughs> because he is. Imagine if you imagine if you could um, hear Kawhi's thoughts on LeBron like twenty years later. It'd be pretty crazy. So this hear LeBron's thoughts. I'm sorry, Kawhi's thoughts. Kawhi's thoughts. <laughs> I was actually thinking about him at work today and just like how how his game just perfectly mirrors like who he is as a person. Like he's he, he's almost kind of stiff and mechanical. Yeah, like when he played, but it, 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 it doesn't matter because he's unstoppable. But you look at him and you're like, this seems very like, yeah, like almost robotic. And then you hear him speak, and you're like, oh, so fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, going back to the doc, uh, what are some of your favorite parts from these the whole entire ten episodes? Um, I I think probably the bits that I enjoyed most and, you know, sue me for recency bias was the stuff about the 97 and 98 finals yeah. versus um, the Jazz. Cause I think it was really cool to, and they didn't go super in depth mm. on the Jazz past Stockton and Malone. There were like, there were like, you know, a few other characters in there that you definitely could have gone more in depth on like as opponents, yeah. um, like someone like Jeff Hornacek, Hornacek or, um, you know, like, um, Brian Greg Anderson, who they, pardon? Greg West to tag. <laughs> no, there are a few people that they could have focused on more than, more than they did, but it was, it was really cool to see kind of the intensity of those battles and the, the fact that two years in a row, the jazz got to the precipice mm. and just, couldn't get it done and I think that speaks to the inevitability of Michael Jordan is that probably no one outside of Utah was you know I remember you know, in, in episode 10 um, um, David Aldridge says I, I thought the Jazz were going to win but I, was, I just remember like watching that and thinking like really like Michael Jordan's been here five times and, and like you know the ball's going to be in his hands for the last shot like do you really think that the Jazz are going to mm. win it just, it just all seemed pretty um pretty inevitable and to hear the, the good thing about the doc is that it gives you enough stuff that was being said at the time like enough kind of contemporary opinion and then it gives the chance for reflexive opinion 20 years later that you can kind of create like a nice um, and full picture but that's one thing that stood out to me throughout the whole doc not just when they're talking about the Jazz stuff is that like everyone at the time would have felt like Michael's going to pull it out, and you know, like every, twenty years later, we're looking at it and we're like, yeah, of course, Michael pulled it out. Like, what yeah. else was going to happen? Yeah, but I guess at the time you didn't know because it it's literally hadn't happened. But you're right there with the enemies and the opponents because we you see Detroit and they're like, oh, these guys are bruisers, and it's like a compilation of Bill Lambier just hitting people. And because we've seen the bad boys thirty for thirty, and we've got like a bit of prior knowledge, we understand like how bad they were. Or you know, talking about Carl Malone and John Stockton, we understand like you know how good they are and some of those Sonics teams. But I watched every episode with my housemate, who is a neutral non-basketball fan, and I sort of felt that you know this show isn't targeted towards non-basketball fans, but I feel like non-basketball fans are missing out because you watch 10 episodes and it's like Michael Jordan beat this team. They've got really good guys. Next episode, this team's also got really good players. He beats them. This team's also got really good players and it sort of loses that punch. It's like a, it's like an action scene in a DC movie. Like the punches don't have weight. I don't know if that's too yeah. nature reference, but it's <laughs> sort of like, yeah, it's, oh, another one, another one, another one. 
And I guess you sort of have to do that if you're making a documentary of 10 episodes 20 years later. But I feel like there's a lot of prior knowledge needed to like really get excited. And I was getting really excited. I knew that obviously I knew that last shot was going to go in, but it's just so exciting. Like, fuck, this just keeps happening. Like, and this happened and it's like crazy to look back on that. He literally hit a shot, stole the ball off Carl Malone, who was having like a killer game, by the way. I think he, he ended of like 11 of 18 from the field with like a cheeky little 27 and 10. I think he had like five assists. Um, he popped off for almost 40 twice in that series, <laughs> Carl Malone, the main yeah. man. Um, so, yeah, it's, I think it, it means a lot more to basketball fans. Obviously, I, don't, I think I'm just saying really plain and obvious stuff right here, but it would have been nicer if they could have fleshed out the opponents more because that's, that's part of the reason why MJ is so great because he was able to overcome all these guys, just like you were saying with LeBron, across all these different eras. And, yeah, MJ is really good at basketball. <laughs> My, what, was, what was your favourite moment? Well, two favourite moments. First one is every single time Tony Kukoc talks, <laughs> and especially when <laughs> Tony Kukoc was talking about Scotty Pippen when he sat on the bench, which we'll talk about that in just a second. But every single time it was like, uh, I've got a little script here. It was, <laughs> it was like, Tony Kukoc goes, so Phil, tell me, you take last shot. And I say, of course, Tony Kukoc good at final shot and I have fast jump shot. And then Scottie Pippen's like, what do you mean? Like, you know, if I'm not going to be in the, in the game, I'm just going to sit in the bench. And that's pretty fucked up because, you know, that's pretty fucked up. That's not a very team <laughs> thing to do, uh, especially for someone who seems a bit as laissez-faire as Scottie Pippen. But can you think of any contemporary – I was trying to rack my brain of like what since then that – and I mean in the time that you and I have been seriously watching basketball, can you think of any time where that's happened? Like – I've got two instances, one being every time Dion Wade is on the court, he feels like he's pissed off that he hasn't got the last shot. But he's not going to say, oh, I'm sitting on the bench because LeBron took a shot over me. Um, and then in the 2015 uh, Eastern Conference semis when <coughs> David Blatt was drawing, drawing up a play for LeBron to inbound the ball and then give the last shot to whoever it was. And then LeBron said, no, nah, fuck that. I'm taking the shot. Don't be stupid. He makes a shot. And then they go on to win the series. But it's, it's very, very sort of naughty for a player to say, I'm not even going to check into the game, which I feel like should have been highlighted a bit more. Like that was pretty fucked up. Don't you reckon? It's extremely fucked up. I thought they did a good job of highlighting it though, because they, uh, like you got Tony Kukoc, you got his opinion. Um, the person who reacted most viscerally was Bill Cartwright, who there's the story about Bill Cartwright, like screaming at Scotty, like yelling through tears because he was like, so betrayed. And mm. Steve Kerr said he felt betrayed. And pretty much everyone that they spoke to about it was like, yeah, I felt like a betrayal. But it just kind of goes to show, I think that's a good example of two things, and is that one, at that point, the team had already been together in that iteration for four years. So there was enough kind of like shared respect as people that they would go, that they'd be able to invest in and move past it. Mm. But then the second thing is that you get a lot longer leash to do something fucked up if you're an all NBA caliber player, because if Dion Waiters pulled that stunt, Dion Waiters would probably just be cut. Because Pippen, you know, is good. It's like, okay, well, in the next game, everyone still feels betrayed, but then you come up against 
um, like the best scoring wing in the league and like, you know, Pippin guards him and strips him three times and holds him to 10 points on four of 14 from the field. And then everyone's like, oh, this guy's pretty good. I guess it's okay. And the best part about that whole story is that Tony Kukoc's nailed the shot. <laughs> yeah, well, fair enough. And like, can you actually imagine Scotty Pippen getting the ball off the catch and then just jacking it? Like, that's not his game. He's got a slower jump shot. It was the right play and it went in. It's like... I'll tell you what, that's why Phil Jackson has 11 championships as a coach. <laughs> That's true. Um, it's, it's probably also why he completely fueled the Jordan rules because he knows best. Um, and every single time speaking to the media, but another favorite thing that I liked about it is that every single time Sam Smith, the journalist who wrote uh, for the for the Chicago Sun Times and wrote the Jordan rules, and then every single time I see uh, what's, uh, there's Will Purdue and Bill Wennington. Bill Wennington, every single time I see him, I just imagine I'm at like some pub tab and then there's one of those high chairs in the corner and there's these three dudes just betting on the horses at three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> and then there's, you know, you've got Sam Smith going, yeah, who fucking cares if I wrote the basketball book? You got a tip for the ponies? And it's like, oh my God. And he's just sitting there just having a laugh, you know, drinking a Merlot or something. It's just... <laughs> that is oddly specific. Um, but it makes sense when you consider that you used to work at a tab and you probably were seeing a lot of those characters. Just like those kind of people. But no, my next serious point is Dennis Rodman uh, in the middle of the finals going to wrestle with Hulk Hogan or join the WWE, whatever it is, for a night, party it up, drink some drinks, and I'm sure take some illegal substances and then just come back and play basketball in like two days, three days later. That's incredible. Yeah, well, and mispractice as well. That <laughs> kind of that I, I, yeah, I thought that was pretty average behavior. And <laughs> the one inconsistency with the whole narrative that I think um, Michael Jordan was trying to kind of cultivate throughout the documentary, he's trying to say that like I. I expect what I'm prepared to give and I'm prepared to give everything. I'm prepared to be excellent. So I expect mm. excellence and I expect people to work as hard as me because I, I know that like if, if we work as hard as me, that we'll win. And then Dennis Rodman just for the entire eight year run was just like able to do, to do whatever the fuck he wanted. And everyone was like, Oh, like, <laughs> you know, like we've got to spend the entire summer like grinding in the gym because Michael's like, you've got to like, you know, You've yeah. got to be able to do this. Like, you've got to be as good as me. You've got to try as hard as me. And then Dennis is like, you know, snorting coke off of like some <laughs> Vegas hooker's chest and not rocking up to practice. And then people are like, yeah, but then, you know, he came. He got came two to rebounds and he, and he gave us on his back. <laughs> he gave us 100% in the game. And <laughs> surely that would have gotten old sooner. I mean, they do say that like he was a singular talent and that people realize that they kind of had to treat him differently. You talk about things that would be different now if that happened. That would be like media crucifixion if that happened. If Draymond now. went off and did the same thing in the twenty. Yeah, finals. yeah, exactly. Kind of did. That's one of that's one of the big things that I think is a lot different in terms of when you try and compare though that that both the the eras and then that Jordan and LeBron, which um, the, the 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 way like the 
you can't get away in that conversation from the way the media covers it at the time and like the values of the media and the um the kind of narratives that are created about you whereas i think at the time jordan probably had a bit more control over the narrative that was created about him whereas mm. now lebron has that like doesn't have that control like the most powerful player in the nba is still kind of at the mercy of like espn or has been for you know like large chunks of his career like late late stage cleveland and early stage Miami. like the narrative about him was created by like skip fucking failures you know mm. and that was the narrative that like permeated a lot of um a lot of discussion so i imagine saying someone like rodman who again they reference it in the doc many but multiple times saying that that would reporters and people saying that they actually thought that it wasn't just Dennis being Dennis. It was actually a pretty carefully cultivated public image. Mm. Um, and then people, you know, media and fans in the nineties bought it in a way. And they're like, Oh my God, like Dennis is so crazy. Now I wonder if like, like a, that behavior just wouldn't be allowed, but B like if it was like, would people kind of like see through it and see it maybe as like a bit phony. I think the best test case is James Harden because he's got a slight reputation of being a bit of a party animal and, you know, he's not going to play well on a Sunday morning game in LA or something like that. Uh, he wouldn't Utah because Utah has no nightlife. So, um, God, you didn't even smile at that one. You didn't get the Draymond reference in the 24-0 win streak? Anyway. I actually didn't, but... Uh, just yeah. goes to show I don't know my Warriors history <laughs> well someone was saying um, you know is, are the Warriors are they going to lose their streak in Utah and then he's like well Draymond's like well what are we going to do in Utah there's no nightlife so it's going to be as well rested as everyone else and then Rudy Gobert had something to say and it was just yeah a little bit cringe after that um, but yeah so like James Arden he probably goes out and does a lot of the things if not more than what Dennis Rodman does it's just if you are James Harden and you want to not be crucified in today's media landscape, just keep it down and it's been kept down. So there's probably a lot of things that someone like James Harden and whoever it else may be does. We just don't know about it because people know how people would react today. Yeah. I think that's probably fair. Whereas, yeah. Whereas Rodman was kind of like, just like doing it, reckless abandon, being like, I don't really care who knows. Is that someone like a heart? And I'm sure there are other players in the league as well who are doing it, but that's kind of like <laughs> Out of 300 players, only James Harden parties. <laughs> it's the one, it's the one guy. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, 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 one thing that I was, well, not one thing, because obviously it was a very thought-provoking doc, but a, something that I was contemplating the whole way through is just like the way that things are perceived now versus then. And mm. I think, um, yeah, there are some, Pretty, pretty substantial differences in, in media and the type of stories that were kind of being um, being written about not just big players, but like, you know, just the, like the type of themes that were prevalent in, in media that now versus then. Um, there's, a, yeah, I think there's a lot more, people, like everyone was kind of really okay just to deify Michael Jordan. Um, media, teammates, opponents, like, you know, it wasn't like the, you know, the, the God dressed as Michael Jordan game, that quote from Larry Bird, like you mentioned before. Whereas now I think there's from opponents and 
teammates and media less of an urge to kind of like crown people as like so much better than the rest and that's kind of contributed to this idea that like someone like Durant might think that he's as good as LeBron or you know like that that sort of thing um yeah do you um do you want to use this as a springboard opportunity to jump into like a little bit of what we've kind of skirted around so far and just touch on like the how does this documentary change or not change your opinion on who's the greatest basketball player of all time i would love to springboard into that conversation dante thanks for asking um <laughs> i don't think it does uh i've said on this it doesn't change it I don't because I've said many times that I, I think LeBron's the goat, and I am biased in that because I've watched LeBron for most of his career, while well, probably just half of his career, and I've seen <laughs> things that he can do. Whereas I didn't watch Michael Jordan play, and I didn't just watch a random Tuesday game against the Bucks, against the Brandon Jennings Bucks, where it's like, okay, LeBron is incredible. He's the size of Karl Malone, but he can windmill dunk and guard a point guard. So just like just watching pretty much a 10 episode montage of MJ doing MJ things is like, it's great. I, mm. I love basketball highlights, but it's not the same as being able to watch a guy night in night out, just dominate the league and do what LeBron's doing right now, which is like, he's prehistoric in age. He's like 36 or something. Mm. And he is, mm. you know, Oh, is he in a is this this later this season putting up like 27 odd points on it is. the best team and, 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 um, by like more than a full assist as well, like not closed. Yeah. So there's, there's no cheeky Rick Rubio's or John Wall's like just stat padding. <laughs> I, I still think LeBron's the go just because of the fact that I've watched him night in, night out. What about you? Does this change your opinion? For a long time, I had been of the same opinion because it's an easier opinion to come to. Um, because exactly what you say, it's just like I've watched probably. I've probably watched like live 60 LeBron games in my life and, you know, like countless more on replay or old games, whatever. Like I've seen LeBron play a lot. I've been around my entire basketball consciousness has, you know, LeBron has been the best player in the league. Um, But recently, um, and this is before the last dance, I kind of started to reconsider my position just because I think that, if I were to look myself in the mirror and be honest with myself, it's easier to poke holes in LeBron's resume than it is in Jordan's because once Jordan really got going, there's no pretty much no hole to poke. You know, mm. like he came through in almost every big moment. Um, mm. He he willed his team. Um, I do think that the difference is negligible. Um, and that I think more so than in any other sports debate, like across a lot of sports, people who think like Michael Jordan is the um, best player are often really, like, really aggressively misunderstand like LeBron James's career and um, the yeah like the sorts of things that they think are ammunition for like why he has failed where Jordan succeeded are actually not really um and a few examples that spring to mind is that like LeBron spent the first seven years or eight years of his career in Cleveland where they were um just like fundamentally unable to put a team around him that um 
you know, that was, good was any good. Yeah. Like LeBron James won six. He won sixty-seven games as a, like a twenty-three-year-old, mm-hmm. um, and the best players on his team was like a thirty-five-year-old Zajuna Silgaskis, who who couldn't move. And then Mo Williams. Mo Williams made one All-Star team, and that wasn't because Mo Williams was an All-Star. It was because of LeBron James. Like once LeBron James left Cleveland. Mo Williams' career, yeah. you know, like when when you know, people were like, "Oh yeah, he's a a low end starting point yeah. guard, not a, you know like a, a like an all star level player." Mm. And twenty three year old LeBron James went to the NBA Finals with that team, so mm. he had success in ways that Jordan didn't um, earlier, despite the odds. Like the documentary does a good job of illustrating how. Jordan was also not like unsupported in the team, like in team building pretty much until they drafted Scottie Pippen. So yeah. that's the first five, six years of his career. Yeah. Um, but LeBron was just as unsupported and still kind of like rocked up to the finals. And that first finals loss in 2007, LeBron James was 23 playing again with the team that we discussed and playing against Greg Popovich, Tim Duncan, Marnie Ginobili, Tony Parker, being defended by Bruce Bowen, who at the time was like one of the best wing defenders mm. in the game. That's an elite team. Um, yeah. And a lot of his other finals losses, um, which is a shame that we have to say like a lot and you know, talk about like there's multiple finals losses. Um, the one um, aberration is kind of like the, the Dirk series. Yeah. Which, you know, it was still, there was still a great team that those Mads, but they obviously weren't of the caliber that, of the team that LeBron lost to in every other one. But, the Spurs, Spurs in 2014 were like an all-time great team. Um, mm. The Warriors, um, when the, the first Warriors Cavs series, when Love went down in the playoffs and then Kyrie Irving fractured his knee, LeBron went to six against that team on his own. You know, yeah. like who, who else is on that team? Um, and then the, the last two losses against the Warriors, you know, what are you going to say? You get five. You get Jimmy on your team. You get, you get one, almost one third of all of the all NBA players. Um, <laughs> you get the scoring champ. You get three MVPs. You get a defensive player of the year and put them on a team. And Andre you, like, Yeah, and Andre, like, you know, no one's, um, no, no one's beating that. No one's beating that. Team. Yeah, well, that's, that's one of the biggest holes in LeBron's resume is that he's had finals losses. But I think yeah. that he's made the finals on such a crap team because let's say MJ had gotten past Detroit earlier on. He probably wouldn't have won the finals um, before the first one that he actually did. Like, you know, that's a bit, yeah. a bit of a, you know, guessing. Might not have been ready to win. But just because yeah, I mean, it's all lost, conjecture. Just because he lost in the semis or he lost in the Eastern Conference finals, that makes his final resume look better. But he's still lost. He's still, it's not like he won every single year. And he still had, you know, somewhat of the exact same team he had around him with Horace Grant and Scottie Pippen. So, it's like just because he didn't make the finals and lose, he looks a lot better than LeBron. But what if LeBron, instead of going to eight finals, lost in a couple of Eastern Conference finals, and then all of a sudden his his finals resume goes from what is it now, like four and four or something? His finals resume, yeah, you know, three, uh, three and six. Yeah. So instead of three and six, what if it's three and three because he mm. loses earlier on to like a good Boston team in one of those early years or something like that? So it's, yeah. It's just a matter of situation, and it's not really when you when you dig in and you analyze like the losses. Um, the Spurs team 
you know, it's like a coin flip. Like that that team had four. You know, we now know that with with what Kawhi's been able to do, and like, you know, it, yeah. it's unfair to say like Kawhi wasn't as good then as he is now. Like obviously, what he's not. Um, he's really developed as a player. Like he won the fucking finals MVP in 2014. He was yeah. like fourth year in the league. So he was still a pretty damn good player for Hall of Famers on that, like on the team that he goes against. Um, that first one, there's three, that first one against the Spurs, there's three Hall of Famers on that team that he goes against. And he's 23 years old. Like name, you know, in the last um, 30 years, um, probably since like magic, name a 23 year old that like lift, you know, led their team to the finals. You, you can't, it doesn't yeah. happen. Michael Jordan couldn't even do it. Yeah. Um, the, the two of the, of his three losses to the Warriors, two of them happened when the Warriors had the aforementioned collection of talent. And it's like, well, you know, okay, sick. And like <laughs> any, any team in the league, any team in history would, would have lost to that team. Yeah. Um, and then the first one, he he was effectively on his own. Like he, he didn't have love, he didn't have Irving, just him and role players, and still made it a series. But mm. you come back to that first Miami loss against Dallas, which you can't really, you can't really explain it away. You can't really say, oh, he was young, or oh, it was a, a team where they had like all these all-time greats. Like yeah, they did. They had you know two of them on the team, but it's just Jason Kidd was thirty-six. You know, like Sean Marion was yeah. thirty-six. He's not a Hall of Famer. We've talked about that. Yeah. <laughs> Put his name into it. That's true. But some actually say I'm going to pivot this year. Some actually say that's an argument for Kevin Durant. I think we talked about this last week, or maybe it was off air. How Kevin Durant joins a super team as LeBron did with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh, and that team. You know, you can put it down to that Dallas team clicking at the right time, being really good. Oh, also a bit of LeBron and his team having like, you know, the Judas essentially, right? And they, they clearly took care of business uh, with the gentleman sweep against OKC the next mm-hmm. season. But for Kevin Durant to come into essentially a same situation, which is a blanket statement, but they both joined super teams that were expected to win. For him to come in and comfortably win that first finals as Kevin Durant on the Warriors and not have a hiccup and not have a burp against a Dirk Nowitzki, that is a, you know, we still both believe that he's that he is the number two, but that is a big case for KD being better than LeBron. That uh, LeBron had to sort of fight for it and he lost the series and came back. KD didn't really muck about. He came in and he hit a game-clinching shot ahead over LeBron as well after defending him the whole entire series. It's an interesting concept and there's no doubt that Kevin Durant is one of the best and like most clinical performers in, in the postseason that we've seen in probably ever. I mean, he's two-time finals MVP and he's got like a plethora of clutch shots that he's hit and, you know, with, with the exception of that series in 2011 when he was, you know, like 23 years old, um, ever since then he's been able to kind of like, uh, well, I mean, ever since he joined the Warriors, he's been able to come through. But OKC, it's a different story because the reason why he joined the Warriors is because the OKC had a 3-1 lead in the conference finals and they lost. Um, but I don't think that it's an argument for Durant as such, because because Miami's uh, Heatles team wasn't like a triumph of is. it wasn't a triumph of team building. It was a triumph of Pat Riley being able to get three All NBA level players. Whereas Golden State was like 
perfectly calibrated around all of their players and they had like you know Miami had role players who did something really really well like they had a Udonis Haslam and they had a Mike Miller and guys who, who were really good at what they did it's just that um instead of having Udonis Haslam in Golden State you've got Jamal Green instead of having Mike Miller you've got Clay Thompson so it's like the best of the best at what they do and they also do more and so I would say that Kevin Durant wasn't asked to do as much um, on any of the Golden State teams as LeBron was on the Heat teams, especially when you consider that the last season before Dwayne Wade kind of started to not be as good was the first season. Like he was mm-hmm. noticeably like getting older every like, every year after that, and um, Bosch kind of not to not to say that he trailed off. Because I mean, you look at he the took a backseat. Obviously, he took he took a backseat in the same way that Kevin Love would later. But because of yeah. the way that the Warriors were built, no one took a backseat. You know, Clay didn't have to take a backseat, and his scoring averages didn't suffer because the way that he was scoring didn't change. And like Draymond still did everything. Draymond still brought the ball up the court and initiated offense and mm. boards and played defense. And Steph still scored twenty seven a game, and everyone kind of still did the same thing. K just slotted in perfectly. So I kind of think that it's an argument not so much for in KD's favour, but like against KD because it's like, well, you know who else slotted in perfectly? Harry Barnes. <laughs> not to compare them, you know, <laughs> in that level, but just to, in terms of the way that the ecosystem allowed a player to just slot in perfectly, um, that's something that few teams have ever had and certainly no, um, nothing that, you know, that's not saying that the LeBron yeah. teams had anyway. Yeah, so the real number two debate here is: Have you got Kevin Durant or Harry Barnes? All right, let's just uh, quickly. Well, if we're going off, if we're going off, who played better in the Atlantic Coast Conference in college? I've got two <laughs> pretty good Harry Barnes seasons to pull on. Yep, oh, I don't get that at all. All right, let's <laughs> move on. Let's wrap up the last dance, uh, the last dance chat before we hit some news. Um, I've got one. Have you got a quote that really stuck with you from any of the episodes? A lot of the stuff that Phil said, um, just from like an organizational. Pop out. Pop out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really like when this guy said uh, most of the stuff that he said. No, no, I mean, I, I can't think of any one quote, but mm. a lot of the um, like kind of organizational management things uh, that you know that that Phil was saying in terms of like he didn't kind of look at it as as much as a basketball team, although obviously he was a great exes and always coach. Um, and that's part of the reason of their success. But just like his ego management and... Um, Dennis Rodman management. <laughs> yeah, Dennis Rodman management. But also yeah. like Scotty Pippen, like, you know, how do you go forward as the coach when the best player in your team just said, no, I'm not taking the last shot. Like, I'm not playing if I can't take the last shot. Um, how do you, you know, like... Um, manage as a coach your best player pretty much just fucking bullying people in practice and how do you like you know make sure that everyone feels respect I can't think of like a specific quote mm. um, that stuck with me um, but I, I was really interested in in a lot of what Phil had to say and I thought it was really good I thought he was one of the characters not characters but like you know um, people that they, that they used really really well other people it was kind of like oh like I don't really know why this person's speaking about this. Um, but Phil, it was always like someone who had really such grounded. a first hand. 
yeah, someone who had such first-hand knowledge and he kind of like was relevant to talk about everything. And he did have that kind of almost... Um, a Zen mentality, which is very Phil. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say like almost like an omnipresent perspective because like, he was there for all of it. You know, He was there the whole way through and he saw everything from like a kind of different perspective than anybody else, both because of like his Zen mentality, but also just because of his position as the coach. What yeah. about you? Uh, well, I was actually proud of you for not mentioning the Roy Williams quote, whereas like, you know, when he turned it on, he was better than everyone, but he never turned it off. And it's like, fuck man, you just want to get on the show. Uh, now mine was in. Hey, don't diss Roy Williams. <laughs> That's a uh, multiple time national champion, Roy Williams. Yeah. Mate. Uh, mine was from <laughs> Ahmad Rashad, uh, just before. Just before game six against Utah, I can't remember if it was 1998 or 97, but just before a clinching game, Ahmad Rashad was hanging out with Michael Jordan and like, you know, all these guys in the, in the room with the security guys and whoever that may be. Um, and Rashad is just sitting there going, some can, some can't. Some can do it, some can't do it. And then MJ just nodding and he's like, don't you fucking tell Scott Burrell that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was my favorite. All right, well, let's, let's, uh, let's move on. Good chat, good show. Uh, can't wait for the sequel when they talk about... Actually, sorry. Uh, I was listening to some guy who I can't remember his name at the moment and he had a bet with his mate for multiple hundreds of dollars uh, whether the word wizards will get mentioned at all in the last two episodes. True. Like He would have got the money if it just said, you know, at the end, how it said what, what happened after the last dance. Yeah. If they had said he played for the Wizards or if MJ had said my Wizards years or shown a Wizards jersey anywhere, there was not a single, single showing of the word Wizard or the site Wizard, not even playing against them in a useless throwaway highlight. And same with um, Charlotte. Charlotte didn't get mentioned anywhere apart from that one time when BJ Armstrong was like trying to big man. Um, That was the only time you ever heard the word Charlotte, which is again, MJ controlling the narrative. And that's, that's what you do when you're the dude who gets to sign off on your own documentary. It's true. It's a, it's a fucking great business plan for (laughs) Michael Jordan. Yeah. Well, let's go from <laughs> let's go from one bulls to the other bulls. Uh, the final say on literally everything. All right, final say on the twenty twenty bulls is quote uh, this is coming from Joe Kelly of the Chicago Sun Times that quote several key players unquote ripped head coach Jim Boylan in the first talks with Mark Eversley and Arturus Karnasovas. So, as the team is first meeting with their new front office. They have the opportunity to voice their feelings on what's going on with the team, on what direction they should take, whether they want to be along for the long haul or what, what their role is with the team. And a lot of them, including key players, which you know I think one of them's name might rhyme with smacks from a fiend, uh, did not speak kindly of Jim Boylan, <laughs> which is fair enough because he's going to call a timeout with 10 seconds left while he's down 10. Yeah, I don't think that this is surprising. First of all, I think it's really good that they're um, the new front office are like being really engaged, engaged with the players and being like, "What do you think?" Like, we really value your opinion. It's just, it's just nice. It's just a nice way. I would to, say most. I would say most teams with their heads screwed on would speak to their employees. How many teams have their heads screwed on? Over fifteen. Well, they're still there. 
around 15 at the moment. So, you know, pass, it's a, maybe it's a pass-fail grade, but they definitely passed. Um, yeah. Do you remember, like, multiple episodes ago when I was saying, get Jim Bourne out of here, and for some reason you were saying, oh, I don't know. Maybe, we, you know, maybe we've been too quick to judge Jim Boylan. It turns out that we were not too quick to judge Jim Boylan and the fact that three days into your tenure as head coach, the players called a players-only meeting where they seriously <laughs> considered mutinying. Mm. It's like in hindsight, we probably could have seen this coming, you know? Yeah, fair the enough. three-day mutiny, there's not many... You're not going to get like a last dance about this Bulls team and everyone in 20 years is going to be like, like Wendell Carr's going to be like, man, you know, when we thought that uh, we were going to mutiny three days in, you know, if you told me 20 years later would be 10-time, you know, NBA champion, it's probably not going to happen. That's probably not how it's going to play out. It's probably going to play out pretty similar to how it plays out where they... Um, a new front office comes a, in. With a terrible coach. team and a new front office comes in and then all the players say, actually, this guy's a fuckwit. I, if I'm a betting man, I'm saying that Jim Boylan is starting the season with the team and I think Service and Eversley are going to keep this one in their pocket and if they get off to a slow start, although well, I can just say, well, let's just fire the coach because the coach is bad and he's pretty much just going to be a failsafe for if the front office, uh, if the front office looks bad, which is usually what happens. And something that, can I just say, there's still hope for Jim Boylan because he could pull a Dwayne Casey and just like, Keep surviving. Uh, look, I'm sounding pretty stupid. He could be fired tomorrow, but <laughs> I'm saying this is a chip for a smart, a, a smart front office to play because you're not going to win next season. You're not going to win a championship, so you may as well just save face by having this scapegoat for your first failure. Fuck, that's negative. I couldn't disagree more. I never <laughs> disagreed with anything more in my entire life. What using if you go th- scapegoat? If you go through this set, like if you go through this set, you fire Jim Boyle in 20 games and you lose 60 games with an interim coach, like you know, whoever the fuck it is, like some random. Or it know, could Mike be. Miller. It could be the next Ryan Saunders. Sick. Cool. <laughs> What's the Timberwolves record this year? They're the second worst team in their conference. <laughs> so the next Ryan Saunders doesn't actually sound that good. Um, if if they if they go through. Yeah, if they followed this plan and they fired him, Boylan, you know, the rest of the season is effectively a write-off. And you can't write off this season with um, Larry Markman and Wendell Carter. This season is like the make or break. Wendell Carter's going into his third season. Larry Markman's going into his fifth season. Four. Um, four. You, you need to kind of know what you've got with these guys. Like a lot, a lot in, in a similar way to what we talked about, um, last week in our mailbag episode where we had a question about Marvin Bagley. Mm. The Kings are going to the season, they don't know what Marvin, next season, they don't know what Marvin Bagley is. He's going into a, a period where they need to know that. Mm. You have to know whether, um, as, the, as the front office in, in, in Chicago, you have to know whether the two highly drafted lottery picks on your team in your front court can play together in the system that you want. And the only way to know that is to get the coach that you want and see if it works. Then maybe blow it up. But, um, you know, this, um, I get the sense that these guys are going to have back a bit of a long leash. And, you know, if they say to, um, if they say to the owners, like, look, 
it's not going to happen in three years. It's going to need a couple of years. This is a team that kept fucking gar packs around for, you know, um, Paxson, oh. Paxson played with the team and then was like an ex- a front office executive since 1998, almost 22 years. And then Gar Foreman came in like 2003, 17 years. So mm-hmm. I don't feel like um, Big Artie, as we call him on the show, is um, going to be like looking over his shoulder being like, oh no, like I really need to play or save 20 games into my tenure. All right, fair enough. Let's move on to the next one. So according to Ian Begley of Sportsnet New York, the Knicks are eyeing Cole Anthony and have, quote, extensively scouted him. Um, And Zach Brasilia of the New York Post says that Anthony says that he would, quote, relish the chance to suit up for the Knicks. How about that? Someone would relish the chance to suit up for the Knicks. (laughs) Um. Yeah, I mean, he does. I'll tell you one thing about Cole Anthony: he does not lack for confidence. So potentially, he thinks that he's the the he'd love to suit up because he's going to be the answer to um, you know, the decades-old New York point guard um, conundrum. <laughs> the next John Starks, the, the they say. <laughs> he's going to be the heir to Lynn Sanity. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of them. I um, I wouldn't hate it. You know, I wouldn't hate it. I don't think that it's a great fit alongside their current collection of, and I use this word loosely, talent. <laughs> um, and again, kind of following on to our discussion that we had, well, it was not really a discussion. It was more of a monologue um, about RJ Barrett last week or the mm. week before mm. about me wanting to see the Knicks give RJ the best chance to succeed. I don't know that bringing Cole Anthony to play alongside him at the point would really do that. But I could be cool. Um, Cole Anthony would look good in a, in a, like a number two New York Knicks jersey. Uh, yeah, I I couldn't care less at the moment. But my dream situation is for Lamelo Ball to go to New York because if he's going to be really good, I would like him to be really good in New York because you get heaps of publicity. And the better Lamelo Ball looks, the better the NBL Next Stars program looks, the better Australian basketball looks. So. And also, I reckon a number two Knicks jersey would also look good as well. So they can both wear the same number. What if um, the mellow ball was going to be good, but then he went to New York and wasn't good? Like, what if him going to New York was the thing that stopped him from being good? Does that change things? So uh, that's what's stopping Kevin Knox from being good. Just the fact that he's <laughs> not the fact that he shoots like 14% from three. <laughs> You're right. Whoa, 14% from the field. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's move on to something that. I mean, to me, came out of nowhere, but according to Chris Haynes, it's very weird. Chris Haynes of Yahoo Sports says that the NBA is going to switch game balls. So they've been with Spalding for a long time and going to be switching to Wilson. Uh, Wilson, the official game ball of the NBL, which is, you know, another shout out to Australia. But uh, in the actual report, the report officially said that as of the 2020-21 season, which is next season, which is quite, you know, shocking. Uh, Wilson will become the exclusive partner with the league producing balls for the NBA, WNBA, G League, and the NBA 2K League. I love that they mentioned the NBA 2K League. Like, you know, you can't just change the ball tomorrow or make it like bright pink with black stripes or something incredibly stupid or, you know, just chucking a Sharon ball there. So it's, you know, that's not the, the crux of the report, but yeah. Changing balls. I didn't know we needed to change balls. 
the weirdest thing about this move is that the Wilson, like in the contract between the league and Wilson, it says that Wilson still needs to design the ball to the Spalding specification. So it's pretty much just like the NBA has contracted Wilson to make the ball that is currently being made and just put their name on it, which just sounds like a pretty weird move because in making that clause in the contract, like saying like, this is how it needs to be designed. You're pretty much saying like, yeah, the Spalding ball is fine, but then you're just being like, well, we don't want to let Spalding make it. We want Wilson to make it for us. It's pretty weird. Uh, I'll tell you who's happy. Tom Hanks. Yeah, I, I am. I'm not going to laugh because I've always listened <laughs> to two NBA podcasts where someone made that joke. But anyway, low-hanging fruit. Good night. Very low-hanging fruit. All right, let's I'll give on. you a. I'll give you a through-the-screen high-five if you want. Thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this is probably the biggest, the biggest news that we probably should have let off with, but as of earlier ah, in the week... Yeah, don't worry about it. The NBA will decide in two to four weeks on whether it will resume this season, according to Shams Charania of The Athletic. So <laughs> I want to say we've got an actual deadline, but we don't have an actual deadline. It's a two to four week window, which you know could be anywhere from two to four weeks, believe it or not. It's so, true. That's, it could be anywhere from two um, to four weeks. Nothing much to make on it, but just exciting that we are a step closer to seeing actual basketball happen. Uh, Dante, just quick yes or no question. Are we going to play out the rest of the regular season? No, but we will play out the not not a full regular season, maybe a couple of games so that everyone gets to 72. Uh, but we will see the postseason. Every other league in the world is um is doing doing this. It's a bit different in is so by doing this, I mean going um that going back like the Bundesliga, the German league went back. Um, last weekend, the Premier League is planning to go back on June 11, and you know other European leagues. I imagine uh, other European leagues who haven't already um, cancelled the season or crowned champions will will go back and do that. The one thing that's diff- that's different there is that the infection rate of COVID 19 in those countries is generally falling or slowing down, whereas in America it's not really. Um, yeah again to avoid this becoming like the american health system podcast but it does kind of put a different strain on um american leagues namely um, baseball and um the nba than their uh, continental counterparts but yes i think we will see the um we will see the postseason because there's just too much money there's too much money involved and everyone loses money in the situation where they where they can't play out of the season so um it turns out in a capitalist society that money is the primary motivator and so on we shall play <laughs> that sounded really like i'm not excited about the nba coming back but yeah. i actually really yeah. <laughs> um, i love the phrase continental counterpart so well done for weaving that in there Next report from Anthony Slater of The Athletic is that the Warriors have no plans to trade Andrew Wiggins. Next up from Anthony Slater of The Athletic is that the Warriors have no plans to trade Andrew Wiggins. And the the report goes on to say that the Warriors didn't acquire Wiggins just to trade him and they expect him to be the starting small forward next season. And if prior reports from The Athletic as well are to be believed that the Warriors are targeting Giannis and want to get Giannis on the team, in some way, 
that would have to involve Clay Thompson and or Draymond Green for the salaries to match. So a lot of Warriors guys I've been listening to have been flirting with the idea of what do the Warriors look like without Clay Thompson. And Dante, another quick one. If the question is, you know, a lot of moving parts around it, but you lose Clay Thompson and you get Giannis, do you do it? Yes. How much would that suck for sentimental value, though? It would it would be terrible for sentimental value. It would be maybe the worst thing ever for sentimental value because Clay, the Splash Brothers are like the, the you know like the Pippin and Jordan of the 2010s. Like they used to be still together. Yeah. Like yeah, they, not many they, players actually play that play that long together. Like there's CJ and Dame, but. How many other duos have actually played together that long? Who would be sadder? <laughs> would it be, would Steph be sadder um, that the Warriors traded Clay? Or would it have been Kyle Lowry being sadder that <laughs> the Raptors traded DeMar Rosen? Definitely Kyle Lowry because, look, Steph's like, oh no, I've lost my friend. Hang on a minute. We've just got a pretty much two-time MVP and well, look player. who walked in the door in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> two-time <laughs> Finals MVP. I didn't even think of that. I just <laughs> as soon as you say Demar Derozan, I just think bad thoughts and not winning. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> true. Um, I still think it's Kyle Lowry just because Steph and Giannis have this enticing relationship. I think. Yeah. I heard this quote a couple of years back at an all-star game where someone asked Giannis what his Mount Rushmore five best players are. And he said something like, you know, he said Steph Curry first, uh, Magic Johnson, LeBron, maybe uh, Damon Lillard. And then he mentioned Steph again, like he had forgot to mention Steph. And then someone's like, Oh, you already said that. And he goes, oh, okay. So then if you're a Warriors fan like me, I'm literally wearing my Warriors shirt right now. You've got this guy in Giannis who someone says, who are the best players ever? And he said, Steph Curry first. And then he's so much on his mind that he said, Steph Curry again later on when he's still thinking about best players in the world. Uh, Yeah, I'm excited. (laughs) Would you trade Clay for Giannis? If if the deal was Clay two firsts and a role player? I wouldn't want to, but I would. Uh, yeah, see, I wish, I wish the regular season was back and working, so I could see what Steph looks like with Andrew Wiggins, and see what Steph looks like with the team that's there now, and at the start of next season, to see what it looks like with Clay Thompson and Steph, and sort of looking back on what it was like in 2015 and how that team would work in 2021, but. It would be very sad to see him go elsewhere. But keep in mind, my pick at the start of the season, uh, one of my bold predictions at the start of the season was that Giannis will be a Toronto Raptor in the next two or three seasons. So I guess I've still got to go with that pick and keep Clay Thompson. All I want to say is keep the Splash Brothers together forever. Yeah, that would be nice. All right. Let them retire as Warriors, get their jerseys retired and finish one and two on the all-time three-point. Field goals made least. Well, it's not actually. It's it's not a too dissimilar argument uh, with with what Danny Ainge brings up a lot, which he says that the Celtics won a lot of championships with Bird and McHale and Parish, and then just ran them into the ground, and 
they went up, they won the championships, and they went down and they lost games while those guys were still on their team. And we saw what Danny Ainge did when it came to trading away Kevin Garnett, Kevin Garnett and uh, Paul Pierce and obviously sort of rebuilding very quickly and they've turned around the pseudo-championship contenders now. Would that sort of be similar to moving on from Clay Thompson where it's hard for the fan base and the sentimental argument to move on from someone like that? But if you're getting a younger, better player in Giannis, is that better for the team? Is it? Would you compare that to the KJ Paul Pierce trade? No, because the KJ Paul Pierce trade, they just got abstract picks that no one thought was going to be as good as it ended up. It ended up being like the highest, you know, the, the most valuable um, talent, you know, like pick collection of all time. But like, it'd be very different if you traded for Giannis. Like, you'd be like Giannis, and, and, and you know, assumed to be a two time MVP walking in the door makes it a lot easier to part. But I mean, sentimentally, it would be. Be terrible. I think that for every Warrior fan, the ideal situation would be that they just don't need Giannis to win the championship, and they just like win two more, and then Steph and Clay Steph gets, his, gets his respect and stuff. Yeah, yeah, you've got me excited, and I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight after you said that. Uh, next up, something very interesting is Spencer Dinwiddie will be crowdfunding his next next contract, which he announced on Twitter himself. And if enough people donate to his GoFundMe. Uh, and donate Bitcoin to the equivalent of 24 million, or just a bit over 24 million US dollars, he will let fans decide where he signs with. So I imagine, I don't know the logistics of how it's going to work. I don't think the, uh, like, it's got to be like a handful of very wealthy people who would donate towards Spencer Dinwiddie's Bitcoin. It's not going to be like you and I donating $10. Like it's a, you know, like it's a blood donation run or something. But if he does reach this point, does he just open up a Twitter poll, chuck in 30 teams, then just retweet himself like twice for the next week and just see who people vote for? Like what's what's the method there? Well, I mean, he's got 88,000 followers. So if everyone donated $10, probably, I'm, not, I'm really bad at math, but he'd probably yeah. get there. <laughs> Um, just add a zero the, to the end of it. So if he if he puts up a, a poll with all thirty teams and someone's like, yeah, like, and then then like twenty thousand people vote for Detroit, <laughs> and then it's like, and then Detroit's like, yeah, well, we're not offering you a contract. Does he just like go down the list until like a team offers <laughs> a contract, or like what if he wants to like sign with the Lakers, but they're like, the, like the voters like go to the Lakers, but then. They're like, because like, we can only afford to offer you like the MLE. And then well, he's like, he said actually, I want be, 20. He said, whichever the fans vote for would be a one-year deal. So if he's willing to take a one-year deal, which probably isn't the safest thing to do for a guy who's had knee troubles in the past. Well, this uh, is why he's getting fucking $24 million in Bitcoins. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So well, there you go. If he's making $24 million in Bitcoin, then he doesn't matter what his NBA contract is. If you if it is the MLE, then his NBA contract is you know he could just see it as the investment he got from the crowdfunding. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I just feel like practically there's some kinks that need to be worked out in the plan because like if if his top ten teams are you know no, but I think he's no. at the level where if he went to all thirty teams and said, "Hey, I'll sign with you for the minimum," all thirty teams would take him. It's not like he's a bad player, and no, that the, some teams wouldn't. Like who? Give me two teams that wouldn't sign him. Well, Detroit wouldn't take him. Why not? Um, a trade because he's too because he's too good. It's a trade chip. 
if you can yeah, sign that dude for the minimum, trade him for two first round picks halfway through the season. Yeah. Like you could trade him to the Lakers for Cole Kuzma in their pick in twenty fifty. He's he's good enough that instead of you winning seventeen games, you win twenty six and you know, you don't get the number one pick, you get the number six pick. I would rather have the I would rather have that loss in picks, but also gain two extra picks from the trade and then you can yeah, buy the Okay. Well, what if? Sorry, what if the, what if the market for him emerges as like the Derek Rose market, and it's like, well, it's two seconds. That's the value. People decide that the the league decides that this is Spencer Dimity's value, and then they're, they're like, oh, wait. So now we we can't get two players in the corner. I just like there'd be teams that wouldn't do it. Someone like Sacramento wouldn't do it because they wouldn't want to like you know. Um, stunt the development of the young guard. Atlanta wouldn't do it for the same reason. They just want to have the ball in their dude's hands. All right. Well, um, I don't think there are enough Detroit fans on Twitter to absolutely tank this uh, tank this poll as well. If they are really like spurned hard to get him, but uh, I was thinking one one last thing on this. What's one team that you could sort of bomb them? Like if you're let's say the Lakers and Golden State Warriors fans, like two large fan bases team up and say, oh, let's stuff this team. Like, let's, let's muck them around. Who would you just sort of bomb the votes for? Like, who's the Alex Caruso team that you would just bomb all-star votes on so it's funny? I'm just going to not answer that question and I've just been on um, Spencer Dignity's account, um, on his Twitter account, looking up information about this, and he's actually deactivated the GoFundMe. <laughs> <laughs> so, to everyone listening, please just uh... 14, 14 hours ago, he oh. tweeted out that he's deactivated the. Um, he tweeted out an image of the account being um, deactivated, um, saying, <laughs> LMAO, this is funny, 2K to charity in two days is a success though. So that sounds like instead of raising 24 million, he raised 2000 and then decided <laughs> this isn't happening. And <laughs> well, you heard it here first. That's breaking news. Okay. So Spencer Dimwee is going to get paid like 60 million in the off season. It's basically what that, uh, it. any Detroit fans who over the last five minutes have been like, yeah, we're getting Spencer Dimwee. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Let's move on. Uh, bit of weird news from jeff snyder of colder so it's not coming from an nba outlet but lebron and adam sandler are teaming up to produce a netflix movie together when i first read this headline i was literally watching the last dance and i just went okay so it's a lebron documentary what's adam sandler doing in it is it like when leonardo dicaprio has a cameo um yeah it's going to be the next uncut gems maybe or just don't really care because I didn't watch. Uh, what was the movie where LeBron was a cheapskate and he was with uh, Amy Schumer? Train wreck. Train wreck. Yeah. Is it just going to be another train wreck? Pardon the pun. Uh, well, train wreck was a train wreck, so I, I fucking hope not. <laughs> um, I'd be interested in seeing Adam Sandler in a basketball court. I feel like Adam Sandler has moves. I feel like Adam Sandler would be one of these guys in a basketball movie who they don't have to like alter the film. They don't have to like shoot from a specific angle. I feel like, I feel like Adam Sandler will post you up at the elbow and back you down 
and just when you think it's safe to reach, he's going to spin the other way and hit like a fadeaway jumper, like and do it like eight times in a row. He's pretty good in grown ups. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The basketball. <laughs> I um I can't say that I remember much of grown ups since I have oh, grown up, but <laughs> <laughs> Uncut Gems, which was his most recent movie, which was directed by the Saki brothers. We were talking about it before, and I mentioned that it was one of the most profoundly uncomfortable movies that I've ever watched. But that I thought that was really good, and Adam Sandler really like rehabilitated his image in that movie. So mm. you know, now is the perfect time to really strike while the iron is hot and attach himself to a big um a big name um kind of producer. Um but at the same time if you asked me do I think this will be a good movie, the answer is probably no. So mixed emotions. Yeah, that's all we need. Uh probably the biggest news the last couple of days is that are you gonna, this is going to, I know this one, I know this one hurts. This one hurts for it feels you, like Sean. I've had wrist surgery, but Boyan Bogdanovich has had wrist surgery and he will miss the remainder of the season. According to Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN. And this pretty much kills Utah's title hopes. Um, Cause obviously they were quite up there in terms of obviously yeah. in terms of titles before and I will now take this as an opportunity to sort of, what's it called when, like my take before the season that Utah would win a title, it is, it is not wrong and not right because, God, there's an actual word for this, but something's happened out of my control and that's why they didn't win a title. Not because like they extenuating were. circumstances. Yeah, yeah. So look, one of the key players has been injured. Um, the main takeaway from this was that Woj and the Utah Jazz both had different accounts of when it happened, but they both mentioned that this injury happened sometime around Christmas, whether that be just you know December 2019 or January 2020. But the fact that this injury happened early and Boyan was just dealing with it really made me upset because... The fact that, you know, players play through injuries. LeBron played through with whatever broken hand he had in the 2015 finals or whatever that was when he came out in a cast after the finals. But players play through injuries and I'm sure the Utah uh, medical team said, look, you can get through the season. Let's just finish the season strong and then we'll worry about getting like surgery on your wrist. We'll worry about getting surgery. But because of coronavirus, that sort of, you know, put a hole in everyone's plans and where timeline was like, look, you can be healthy and get away with it until what is it? May. Now that looks, you know, look, it's looks like it's going to be pushed forward a couple of months. So it's, it's more out of, he was probably going to get this surgery done this time of the year, no matter what, it's just where the basketball's still on right now, which obviously it isn't. So sadly we will not see Utah clinch a title this season. I'm just going to break that news now. Just for a bit of context for that last comment, um, the day that the NBA played their last, um, the last game, March 11th, um, 5.38 in their 2020 title prediction odds gave Utah less than 1% chance at winning the title. So, um, you're you're right in saying now that Utah won't win the title, but not yeah, not necessarily um, exclusively because um, their third best player, 
to do this play and hurt his wrist. <laughs> Look at you. I hope you feel good after <laughs> after that comment. Uh, final news. Me, me watching um me watching the last dance um episodes nine and ten where they talk about Utah losing in the finals, being like, fuck Sean would hate this. This would be <laughs> terrible for him. <laughs> Those jerseys are so cool, those purple jerseys. They uh, were, weren't they? Final news of the day is that Walt Perrin is joining Leon Rose and the Knicks, according to Malika Andrews of ESPN. And Walt Perrin, who's that? No, seriously. <laughs> no, seriously. Who is that? He is a f- <laughs> he's a former front office executive for the Utah Jazz who has been widely recognized as one of the reasons for Utah's successful player development and drafting regime. So he's been there for, I think it was just two decades or just under two decades. 19 years. 19 years. And in that time, he oversaw the team drafting uh, late, late first round and second round steals and Paul Millsap, Mo Williams, all-star Mo Williams, uh, Rudy Gobert, and also being one of the main factors in play, according to uh, people in the former Utah front office for, sort of forcing them to go up high enough to draft um, Deron Williams, saying that he is a difference maker and you need this guy on your team. And same deal for Donovan Mitchell in 2017. He told the team that, look, this is a guy you need to get uh, and go and get him. And, you know, for every for every Donovan Mitchell, there is a Dante Exum. And for every Deron Williams, there is a Trey Burke. But I think that's just natural variance unless you're the Kings, which is, turns out you just draft bad guys and that's your variance. <laughs> um, we always finish the podcast without King Slander. Um, and I think this is a good signing by the Knicks. But again, every single time there's a glimmer of hope in the Knicks, they seem to squash it. So I'm interested to see how they're going to fuck this up. I have two thoughts with this. The first thought is that does this mean that they're going to trade up and draft Cole Anthony and that he's going to be really good like all of the other players that this guy has drafted? Um, I hope that it's yes because, again, like we mentioned at the top of the news, he looked pretty cool in a number two New York jersey. The second point that I have to make is the whole idea of New York as like superstardom, star power, glitz and glamour, um, cultural clout and then them bringing in Leon Rose and uh, what's the other guy the other guy's name who's like the um, you know like the star maker Steve Stout yeah Steve Stout Leon Rose and Steve Stout are like they have relationships with the biggest players in the yeah, league and they that. yeah and they um, you know they, they, they roll in the highest circles and, and it's like now they're bringing in a guy who's been in Utah for 20 years. <laughs> it doesn't really seem to kind of fit the theme here. <laughs> a guy who's been in the second smallest NBA market for the last 20 years and they're going to rock up and he's going to be like, yeah, I haven't been to a bar in 15 years, um, but I think you should draft this guy and they're going to be like, yeah, all right, country bumpkin. <laughs> Enough. Like, get out of here. Anyway, that's how I imagine... Um, that's how I imagine that... Um, conversation going but that being said in my research about who is Walt's parent <laughs> i stumbled across a picture of him and he actually looks like a really nice man he looks, he looks like a really nice guy he looks like he looks like a like a nice dad <laughs> of two older his kids are like late 20s and grown up and doing their own thing and both successful but also like very morally correct respectable people like he's 
he's, he's proud of the job that he's done in raising not only successful people, but good people. So, you know, maybe if this is the person to change the culture in New York, then who knows? This one sweet little father figure is going to come in and just blow the nicks off their face. <laughs> Can't wait to see it. Anyway, that's all we've got today. So thank you very much for listening. Remember to follow all of our social channels on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn if you're so inclined. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast, get notified of new episodes. And Dante, I'll speak to you next time. Catch you then, bro.